2008. Our message this morning is Sycamore Fig Tree. Uh, You'll get to read about that in the pastor's corner here eventually. But for now, just turn to Luke 18. And I want to talk to you about a progression of Scripture in Luke. Hey, wasn't worship good? I want to tell you something. Uh, There is a giant, giant, overwhelming movement of compromise in our country. And it's not just in our country. It works against the gospel everywhere that it is. But in the American West, it seems to have prevailed. And this pressure is upon churches that success is defined as growth. And the more people, the more successful. And because of that, what begins to happen is there is pressure to take anything out of a service that might be uncomfortable. I want you to know I wore shorts and flip-flops long before I ever heard there was a seeker-friendly movement. I'm not very excited about the fruit that that movement's produced. Uh, I'm not here to judge it. I'm just telling you, we are not doing the things that we're doing to make worship or preaching more palatable to you. We're simply doing what we are. I wouldn't normally wear a three-piece suit and run around and jump up and down and be excited in my home, so I don't come here and pretend that that's the way to do it. I am here what I am in my home, and I'm encouraging you to do the same thing. When we pray here, it's not according to a script, because when I kneel and pray in my home, it's not according to a script. We believe that Christianity flows out of your life, not out of a robe or ritual. Having said all of that, because it has nothing to do with our message, Paul said in Corinthians, these things must be done for the strengthening and edification of the body. If we remove a prophecy in tongues because it makes somebody uncomfortable, even though it's interpreted and it's edifying, we have disobeyed not only God's leading of the Spirit, but also His written Word. If we forbid the moving in any of the gifts, whether we're talking about speaking in other tongues or supernatural faith or some kind of healing, we are moving against what God is doing. Now, I'm clarifying all of this because I want to set a tone in our church forever. There is never a time that we will back up, let up, or shut up about the moving of God. There is never a time that I will be embarrassed of what God has done for us. So dance with all your might. Run laps around the church. None of it will bother us because that's who God's called us to be. Having said that, your individual experiences with God do not become the paradigm that all Christians must cram themselves into. Matt and I got saved in two different ways, but saved nevertheless. Uh, He actually baptized me and I have no idea whether the water actually closed over my head. I could care less. I don't know what phrases he used when he baptized me. What I know is I wanted to be clean and I wanted to show the whole world that I was born again. And if God didn't take it, then friends, there are going to be hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, that are going to have to explain how so many people keep getting filled with the Holy Ghost and keep getting saved around our lives. I think that the proof in a Christian's life is in their fruit. I'm telling you all of this to say we will embrace every move of God in any way that we can. But I'm not telling you that the way that I worship is the way that you have to worship. I'm saying simply embrace God with all of your senses 
Embrace God with all that you can. Lately, some of our sheep have been in debates with people about revivals in distant places. I want you to hear right now, I am not vouching for any revival anywhere. If I haven't been there and I haven't met the people, I don't have an opinion where I don't have authority. You understand what I mean? Having said that, I am not going to stand and rail against anybody who is trying to do something for God. You show me where in the Scripture pastors are called to belittle other pastors to make themselves look good. I'm not doing it. Okay, I hope that puts to rest any discussion. I, I get questions an awful lot. What does Pastor Eric think about this? What difference does it make what Pastor Eric thinks? There's only one opinion that matters. Period. Only one. You know what Pastor Eric is really, really interested in? The people in this room and those God will add to this room. Uh, and whatever God has for us outside of that. I don't care if there's a revival in Ontario that somebody thinks is off base. <laughs> That's somebody else's job to worry about. How much better would your life be if you were solely concerned with the work God had given you to do? And don't feel like you need to defend God. You need to defend God about as much as you would defend a lion. You just open your little box you put Him in and let Him out. God will defend Himself. Do you understand what I mean? Amen. A number of times you will give a prophecy. You will do something that is unusual for you. And immediately the devil is right there telling you it's a lie. Uh, They're going to think you made it up, blah, 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 blah. A couple was here, uh, Buddy and Kim Brasso, a few weeks ago. I prophesied to them, another stranger in our group. I sat there and I thought, I have never seen a colder, harder, more stern look in all of my life than that man's wife was giving me. You know, she went back to her church and had the woman at the well testimony, that pastor told me everything I ever did in my life. I mean, she went back and she had been glorifying God, but I was convinced that day that she was angry. We don't walk by faith or by sight. We walk by faith, thanks. There's one opinion that matters in your life. Can you all say amen to that? Okay, you want to get into the Word? Let's pray for me, then we'll get into the Word. Mighty God, Lord, we pray that as I open my mouth, You would fill it with Your Word. Lord, with all of my heart, I've not stepped up here today as a trained speaker or to impress them with entertainment or funny jokes. Lord, I simply have what You've given me and I pray that You would help me convey it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Okay, so in Luke 18, I want you to read the first verse. It says, Then Jesus told His disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Isn't it great when you get a note in the Scripture like that? Like sometimes John will say something like, uh, in John 7:37, the Scripture says, Jesus cried out on the last and greatest day of the feast in a loud voice, If any man thirst, let him come and drink of me. Some be standing around scratching their head, How do we drink Jesus? And then in parentheses, in our modern Bibles, John put, He said this because the Spirit had not yet been poured out. Right? It explains it. Before we read this parable, and we're not going to read it because I'll tell you about it, He tells you why He tells it. So that we would learn to pray and not give up. Have you noticed that that has nothing to do with sycamore fig trees, which was the title of our message? Will you be able to be with us for a few minutes as we work through Luke 18 to get to a sycamore fig tree? Yes. One of the things that is insulting 
is when people have to be so incredibly repetitious that you begin to get the impression that they think you're in kindergarten. I remember not many years ago, a politician gave a speech where he must have said lockbox 40 or 50 times. And by the end of the speech, all I could remember was that this man thought we were all so stupid that he needed to be on key to the point where he said the same thing a hundred times. I'm not going to belittle you today. I'm going to trust that you can follow through an entire chapter and catch a larger point. Fair enough? Steve's with me. Good. Okay. So he teaches them a parable and says, I want you to pray and not give up. Keep your finger here. Go to Luke 8.15. By the way, this is going to be a honey message today. And what I mean by that is you guys got all New Testament. That means that we could not turn to these Scriptures and you would know them, right? Right, because this is like the cliff notes. The 27 books of the New Testament simply expound upon the 39 books of the Old. One contiguous revelation, and I know you guys are so thoroughly versed in it that we're only reading these for my benefit. Because all of you have been saved more than a week, right? Right? You could read the right romance novel in a week. The 27 books in the New Testament can be read in a week. Do you know how I know that? Because I read them in two days, the first two days that I was born again. So, well, you must have had nothing else to do. It was actually finals that week. I had nothing else to do. All right, in 815, 815 it says, But the seed on good soil stands for those who are noble and good hearts, for those with a noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. Luke, when he was speaking, taught or actually wrote Jesus' words many times and he teaches an idea. The idea is that perseverance produces what God wants. Paul echoes this in Romans 5 about perseverance, character, and hope. In fact, most of the Scripture echoes this. I'm going to read you one more in Hebrews. You stay in Luke 18. Go to Luke 18 and I want to read you something in Hebrews and then we'll move on. In Hebrews, the 10th chapter and 36th verse, the Word says, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what has been promised. I say all of this to say that what we're talking about today, starting, is where Luke begins to record Jesus' words in the 18th chapter. The Christian life begins with an attitude that says, I will pray and not give up. Do you know why it must begin there? It must begin there because when you start, somebody tells you something like, hey, you're a new creation, but is that what you see? No. When you look in the mirror, you don't see you're a new creation, but you pray and you don't give up. The first things that happen is God says, I will completely revolutionize your life, just like I'm going to do the entire creation to where you will be a new creation even as there is a new heaven and a new earth. But is that what you see? No. So most of the Christian walk in the beginning starts with perseverance. You need to be able to plow ground without seeing fruit immediately. Having said that, if you think back to the first few weeks you were born again, weren't they almost magical? For me, I felt like I could see Jesus moving in the clouds, in the trees. Turn on the radio and REO Speedwagon is singing about Jesus. 
Yeah, everything. Because to the pure, all things are pure. Having said that, many of the things that happened in my very first year of Christianity are not yet completely realized in my life. The man who will not persevere is like someone who plants a seed and runs out every day and digs it up to see whether there's growth. Will he ever yield a harvest from that? Probably not. As we move through Luke 18, the very next thing that happens after this parable that was taught about perseverance and praying and not giving up is you see a very odd comparison and contrast. You see a Pharisee and a tax collector. Again, Luke tells us about this parable. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. So why did He tell the parable? Because some were self-righteous and looked down on everyone else. Isn't that interesting? Think about this contrast. A Pharisee would be like a Catholic person talking about the Pope. Okay? This would be the most religious, most pious, most holy person that you know in the context in which Jesus is speaking. And yet the whole point of this parable is that a tax collector, somebody who is on the opposite end of the spectrum, a tax collector is somebody who works for the oppressive Roman government, who might come by and say, David, do you have your taxes? No. Oh, well, I kind of like your daughter. I'm going to take her instead. This is what Roman tax collectors were known for. And the only thing worse than a Roman tax collector was a Jewish collaborator who worked with the Romans. If somebody stood to tell you a story and you had never heard this, and you started with a Benedict Arnold-type figure, somebody who was working for the enemy during a time of war, and then picked the best religious leader you know. For us, it might have been Billy Graham. And told the story about who was righteous and who found the mercy of God. Could you in any stretch of the imagination think that the point of the story would have been that Benedict Arnold would be found righteous? Probably not. And yet, Luke includes this story right after pray and don't give up to show us something. And what he says he's going to show us is that we should never look down upon others. Say, well, what on earth could that mean? Keep your finger here. We're going to let Luke interpret Luke. Turn to Luke 7. In Luke 7, starting in the 41st verse, it's Jesus speaking with someone who happened to be a Pharisee. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other fifty. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. I want to encourage you, saints, if there's something that you're praying for, don't give up no matter how hopeless that it looks. There's a progression in this 18th chapter of Luke. He begins sharing with you the idea that you should pray and not give up and He closes that whole teaching with, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? In other words, will you show me that you trust me by not giving up and going after what I've told you to go after? And then the very next parable, 
is the most unlikely person that you could possibly imagine finding the favor and grace of God. Now, I know your family tree doesn't look like mine because all of you are of noble birth. All of you have well-groomed pedigrees. can trace your ancestry all the way back to some king in England, right? But in my family, there are some that when you pray for it's difficult to even conceive that they could be saved. Do you know one of the most harsh things Jesus ever said? He said, I'll tell you the truth. If you say Raka, you're answerable to the Sanhedrin. But I'm telling you, if you say Raka, you're in danger of hell fire. you know what Raka meant? It meant not only are you a fool, stupid, like lacking intelligence, but in Hebrew it has a much deeper context. It is you lack the moral fiber to be able to find God. I want you to understand And God is trying to set up for us through the writer Luke relaying the stories of Jesus something. I need you saints to persevere in what God has promised and nothing is impossible. Don't look at a single person and think they're beyond salvation. Don't pick a single relative and say they can't be saved. Matthew's here and he can attest. In my own high school, I was probably the least likely candidate for salvation. I remember I was walking down the hall the day after I was born again. Right? It was finals. Walking down the hall and a little girl was walking next to me and all I remember is she was tiny. And she was looking up at me. And looking up at me kind of silly. And I said, what's wrong, sweetheart? Didn't you think that somebody like me could be saved? No. She was honest. She really didn't think so. You find out that God will pick those, hear me, that others have cast off. I was working for a security company in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I was about to fire a salesman because he kept coming in blue jeans, and we were not allowed to wear blue jeans. I also happened to not like the tongue ring that he was wearing very much. And as I was walking in the room to fire him, I got that something in my chest. And I knew something was wrong. And the Lord spoke to me a very simple phrase. Don't count him out. So when I walked in the room to fire the man, I ended up praying with him. He went home later that night and saw a vision and his whole life dramatically changed. I wanted to throw away someone because I didn't like the way they acted. I didn't like the way they looked. In his case, I didn't even like the way he smelled. But you know who didn't mind? God Almighty didn't mind. How many people do we discard in our daily life? Because they don't meet your standards. Travel a little bit outside this country and you will find out everybody has different standards. Even Indo-Europeans have had different standards at different times. I know today it is popular to be a stick figure with hair and to only have fat amassed in certain places on a woman's body. You know, it was not always this way. It was more visually appealing at other times for some of you to be shaped more like me. Our stereotypes and our judging by mere appearances is fickle, and it changes regularly. 
And these are not the things that God examines. When you see someone that is the chief among sinners, do you know what we ought to be able to do? Say, wow, if that one got saved, he would love the Lord an awful lot. Because when you've been forgiven much, you love much. Now, if you're honest with yourself like I was with myself this morning, this is not always our first thought, is it? Now, we like, we like to shove people into categories. Luke begins this progression of thought for a reason. He's taking us to a certain place. Luke is like a master historian, and yet, I don't think that this was intentional. I believe that this was simply the Holy Ghost stringing pearls together in his life. You will see each parable, each topic heading, each discussion all takes us to the 19th chapter so that we can accept what God does in the 19th chapter. We move on from this idea that you should not look down on anyone because whoever is most greatly indebted, if they're forgiven, is most grateful. Do you ever argue with somebody about who sinned the most? We used to have this thing in the church we were from. We'd laugh. We'd say, you know, Jesus, He appeared to me yesterday. Great sin. We're lying. And He told me, Eric, you're my favorite. I love you the most, right? The only proper response to that was, well, of course. Of course you love Him the most and He loves you. You sinned the most. (laughs) And we developed this uh, spiritual sparring if you will. And it was a joke for a long time. But tell me the truth. Do we look at people sometimes and think, they've been an alcoholic 20 years, there's not even a shot for them? We do, don't we? In my own family, I have to fight with these thoughts. And this is because our patience gets worn out much quicker than God's. Our mercy runs out much quicker than God's. But what measure is God going to use for you? That's right. The measure you use for other people. See, I don't have to turn there because you all already know that, right? Because you read your Word. Because this is the most important book that the world has ever known. Printed in the blood of the martyrs, right? So you all already know those Scriptures. Judah, if I needed you to turn to that, you could do it, right? It's hard to be a pastor's son, by the way. (laughs) Okay, so in Luke 18, we move from the idea of persevering, fighting, never giving up, to the idea of don't look down on anyone or consider them unsavable. The next thing that happens in Luke 18, the 15th verse, it says, people were also bringing babies to Jesus to have Him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. What an interesting scenario. People just want their kids in the presence of Jesus so that He can touch them. But the disciples immediately thought this was a bad idea and began to rebuke the people. Is that because the disciples were wicked? Imagine that you're at, uh, whichever your preference is, the Democratic National Convention or the Republic National Convention. Imagine that you're there. have a billion kids like they're not everywhere. And you approach the podium. And your kids have run up to, let's for argument's sake, say John McCain. Don't read anything into that. It's just a hypothetical situation. Let's say they run up to John McCain. 
Might you have a tendency to want your kids not to bother such an important man? Yeah, you might, right? This is the attitude in which the disciples are trying to stop them. Turn with me to Corinthians 1. Keep your finger here. The first Corinthian letter, the first chapter. Come on, David's there. We're the rest of you. You've got to get a Bible with a sixth gear or an automatic transmission. Coming to church without your Bible is a little bit like going to football practice without your helmet. Don't do it. Corinthians, the first chapter, and the 26th verse. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Well, that's a nice way to say some of you were dumb. Not many of you were influential. There's a nice way to say you're unimportant. Not many of you were of noble birth. I don't have to tell you what that's a nice way to say. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. I want you to understand that Jesus didn't consider Himself too high and lofty to associate with the children that the disciples thought were too lowly to be in His presence. If you follow this progression, God is saying through Luke 18, don't give up, keep praying. Don't count anyone out or look down on them. Don't look at something that is foolish in the world's eyes and assume that it's foolish in God's eyes. The very next parable that you to has to do with a rich man. And this rich man in the 18th chapter and 24th verse is told something. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is possible with men is impossible. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Follow the progression. I don't want you to consider giving up ever. You keep praying. I don't want you to look down on someone and see them as unsavable. I don't want you to consider somebody too lowly. God takes lowly things and uses them to shame those who are high and lofty. And then He moves on to the biggest obstacle that anyone could have. In this man's life, Wealth, and many of your lives, it might not be a giant fortune that you're sitting on. If it is, come talk to me after the service. We'll teach you all of those scriptures that say, leave your gift at the altar and then go get right with your brother. Wealth is a snare for many people. And if it's not wealth, it is some other love in the world. In this process of coming to Christ, we learn to persevere. We learn not to look down on others because we've been shown so much mercy. We learn that even the foolish and weak things in our lives can be used to glorify God. And then we are absolutely learning to strip ourselves of anything that would attach us to the world and hold us back. 
One of the most unusual scriptures in the world is Luke 16.9. And you can turn there if you want, but I rarely lie when I preach. So you might trust me if I tell you Luke 16.9 says, Use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. Is that not a strange scripture? Would you not have swore that that came from Lucifer, Ron Hubbard, or some cultish influence? Did I mispronounce? L. Ron Hubbard. I'm sorry. Would you not think that that is just the strangest Scripture in the world? When you read it in its context, what you find out is that He's saying whatever you have at your disposal, use for the kingdom of God. Because all hope that you have in this life is not really hope at all. Everything that we have be invested in doing what God has told us to do. I'm not telling you this because I want your money. All of this is building towards a point. We move on from here to the very next major event. Towards the end of Luke 18, starting in the 40th verse, Jesus has encountered a blind man. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? You know why he asked the man, What do you want me to do for you? Because although the man was blind, this is not what he was there doing. He wasn't there looking for anyone who might pass by that they might heal him of blindness. He was there begging for money. So Jesus asked him, what is it that you want from me? You want a few bucks? Or do you want me to fix your whole body? It's an amazing thing about God. Thessalonians literally goes so far as to say, that some will perish because they refuse to love the truth, and so God sends them a delusion. God will give you whatever you want from Him in a greater abundance than you ever asked for it. If what you want is righteousness and you hunger and thirst for it, you will be filled with it until it is coming out of your ears. If what you want is a wicked life, something that is away from Him, something that hides in darkness, He will give you so much rope that you hang yourself. Ask Judas. He did it literally. He asked this man, what is it that you want? And what's his response? I want to see. The Word teaches us pretty clearly. Luke 11 is a great place to read it. So keep your finger here. We'll turn to Luke 11 and we'll be in the ninth verse. If you don't want to turn, I'll quote it to you. Just refresh your memory because I know you could quote it. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Did you hear that? Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Don't approach me about desert island questions. Don't do it. I mean, I've answered them more times than I care to. I I want you to understand this. If you're approaching me about, well, what if a man was on a desert island, and he never heard the gospel, nor had any contact with any human beings, what would happen? Number one, the scenario is not possible if you were telling me about it, right? It's not possible if you're the one telling me about it because he had to interact with someone. What a ridiculous intellectual exercise. The Word teaches us that if we seek, we find. In history's accounts from Indian tribes in Central America to people on the far side of the globe are that when men and women cry out to the God above all gods, He reveals Himself to them. I can show you ink and literature that looks like David wrote it. 
and they never had any contact with Christians or Jews. Do you know how? A man was sit, sitting, reasoning. He said, we're worshiping Verochi, the sun god. And the smallest cloud obscures his presence. That can't be right. I can block him out with my thumb. He goes down and comes up at the same time. He said, what a boring god. And he began to call out to the god that was above Verochi, whoever made him. And the God of the universe revealed Himself in a way that I would swear it was David writing the Psalms. And it is beautiful. And there was a revival. And if the Catholics had not come and killed all of them, there would have been Christians there today. Did I say that out loud? I meant if the Spaniards had not come. They could have been Baptist Spaniards, right? He says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will he give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. The last thing that Luke mentions before we get to our text today, after telling you pray and don't give up, don't give up on anybody, don't give up on yourself, don't give up on God, don't look down on anybody, don't consider anyone too foolish, anyone too lowly to be saved or used by God, don't allow the worldly wealth or anything in the world to hinder you from doing God's will. He concludes with a story that says, what is it that you want to see? And the man wanted to just see. He wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to see. And he got his wish. I'm asking you, church, what is it that you want from Jesus? Reinhard Bonhoeffer prayed for a million dollars. And I love him that he was honest enough to write that down. He says, Reinhard, do you really want a million dollars? And he began to cry and he said, no, no, I don't. Give me a million souls instead. Now Reinhardt has millions of dollars, I'm sure. How could you reach so many people without having resources flowing through you? Not coagulating, but flowing through you. You know what else he has? Millions and millions of people saved. We need to figure out what it is that we want from Jesus. There is a gospel being preached on television constantly being preached all around because it appeals to a selfish greed. And it tells people what you should want from Jesus are material blessings. Friends, I would rather have vegetables with the righteous. We've got a couple of vegetarians here. Vegetables with the righteous than meat with the wicked. I'm not serving Jesus for what I can get from Him. Did you hear me? I'll tell you one further. You read Ephesians 2 carefully you'll find out you're serving Jesus for what He can get from you. See, He's prepared works in advance for you to do. You're His workmanship created in Him for that purpose. But that's not what I'm preaching today. What was our title? That's right. Sycamore fig trees. Jesus entered Jericho. This is 19.1. Jericho in the Bible is often used to typify the world. When Yehoshua, Joshua, 
or Yeshua, all of those are the same word. It means Yahweh's salvation. First encountered the promised land when he's looking at crossing a Jordan at flood stage to face the kingdoms of the world. They're represented by the city Jericho. In fact, the city didn't fall through warfare because we don't fight with the weapons of this world. Rather, instead, we stand ready to pull down every wall, pretension or argument with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, Paul said. How did Yehoshua defeat Jericho? He only allowed the people to speak when God said to speak. But when God said to speak, they did exactly what God said. So once a a day they marched around and blew a ram's horn, the authority of the king of the sheep, moving by way of his Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit, flowed through them. This happened once a day for six days, and on the seventh day, go study Rosh Hashanah and you'll find out exactly what that is. They did it seven times, and the kingdom of the world's walls fell, and the people marched straight in. In other words, what was the kingdom of the world was now the kingdom of God's people. Joshua pronounced a curse upon the city if it were rebuilt. He said, at the cost of a man's firstborn son will he lay the foundations. And at the cost of another son will he complete its building. And you know what they did? Somebody rebuilt that and lost two sons. Jesus is passing through Jericho, the kingdom of the world, if you will, and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. When you think of Zacchaeus, you're schooled in biblical literature. Might be something that comes to mind immediately. Zacchaeus was not Shaquille O'Neal. Zacchaeus was not a great big guy. Zacchaeus was short. But you know, when his mother named him, when Zacchaeus was born, how many mothers do you know that as soon as Emmy Piro comes out, right? They named her Emmy Piro, Emmy Angel Piro, and they thought greatly about what those names meant. And they named her with the hope that she would be something great. How many mothers do you know said, this is my baby, and I think what I'm going to call him is loser. <laughs> we'll get a big L tattooed right on his head. This is my baby, and you know what in their future? Crack whore. No? Probably not, huh? We don't have those kind of ambitions. Do you know when Zacchaeus was born, what his mother and father saw? Pure. Zacchaeus means pure. They had a baby, and they thought, he's pure before you, Lord. Have you ever held a newborn in your hands and thought, how pure, how beautiful? Jesus is passing through the world, and He comes across someone who is destined to be pure. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Naming someone Zacchaeus, who turns out to be a wealthy chief tax collector, is a little bit like calling a fat guy tiny. This is one of those things that the two really ought not go together. It's almost humorous to say. I worked with an F&I manager at Grave Chevrolet, and his last name was Carline. I guess I could tell you his first name too then, but why do that? His last name was Carline. And uh, Mr. 
Erlein was not a great big man. He wore shoes that had great big foundations in them and was still not a great big man. And because people were nervous when they had to go into the office to sign paperwork when they were buying a car, anybody ever been there? You have that gut-wrenching feeling like, did I just get taken, right? I know they're making more money on this than they told me. He said it's a mini commission, but they say that to everybody, right? All of those things. Not David. When he sold cars, he didn't say that. So I would tell people, look, the F&I man is a great big hulking man. And I'm sorry, I know it's an intimidating position, but we call him King Kong Carline. All I'm, all I'm saying is that when you go in there, I'm going to introduce you. Uh, try not to let it bother you, okay? He, he didn't intentionally put himself between you and the door. That's just, that's just how his office is arranged, right? And people are looking at me kind of crazy like, well, what are you talking about? And you walk him in there and then we would have Mark's, there's his first name, stand on a chair. And he'd be standing on a chair when we got in, right? And it always brought levity to the situation. It brought humor to the situation and everybody relaxed and it went fine and Mark made lots of money. <laughs> A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, pure. He was a chief tax collector and wealthy. Didn't we just hear Jesus say something about wealthy? Didn't we just hear Jesus say something about tax collector? That's right, we did. Somebody in Zacchaeus' life apparently was praying and not giving up. Somebody in Zacchaeus' life was apparently going, look, if a Pharisee and a tax collector both approach God, But the tax collector approaches rightly, he too can be saved. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. Don't rebuke the lowly. Don't keep the lowly from getting into his presence. And let's let's, let's be honest, probably the most quoted in all the denominational churches is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? And one just a little short. Is that your fault? Even if you were let's just say you wanted to play in the NBA, but you're three foot six. Unless you have a ninety inch vertical leap, it's probably not gonna happen. Is that your fault? Whose fault is it? was my parents' fault. They gave me the genetics. Really, who gave them their genetics? Well, their parents. So we go the generations blaming. We fall at a guy's feet named Adam. We're all born just a little short in God's eyes, falling short of the glory of God because we came from the same diseased stock. Whose fault is it? Well, it's not really yours. It's not really your parents. And yet, somehow or another, collectively, it's everyone's fault because we've all fallen short. It wasn't just the way you were born, it's the way we've chosen to live. A name was what you chosen to be. It's supposed to be your authority. It's supposed to be your reputation, your body of work. In Hebrew, it means shem. It was an awesome thing. It's something that you come into and you live in and you walk in. It was prophetic. He was destined to be pure. But when we have a short tax collector, and not just any tax collector... To be promoted among the Romans, you needed to be more perverse. You needed to extort. You needed to do 
more bad things than someone else. Do you think that they would naturally put a Jew over other Roman tax collectors? Not unless he was very good at what he did. So how do you think that the world views Zacchaeus? Think somebody might call him a raka? A godless fool? I bet there were people in his life that did. But somebody prayed and didn't give up. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now let me ask you a question. Is there anybody in here above the age 30 that has climbed a tree this week? Is there anybody in here above the age 30 that's climbed a tree this year that didn't have little nails in it with boards and you were carrying a gun to shoot Bambi? Huh? Isn't that kind of a kiddish thing to do? To go climb a tree? But didn't Jesus just say, if you're not willing to become like one of these little kids, you'll never see the kingdom of God? See, Zacchaeus was blind, but Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. If you seek, you will find. Especially if you're willing to come down from your high lofty position that is short in God's eyes and do exactly what He says to do. Why do you think Luke built this up in the way that he did? He could have recorded Jesus' words any way that he wanted. John says, and then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw. And you're like, wait, is this in sequential order or not? Would you please tell me what time is this happening? And scholars have debated it for a couple thousand years. Sometimes in the Gospel of John, when you compare the Gospel of John to the synoptics, you cannot tell whether we're in the first year, second year, third year of Jesus' ministry. Although I think it's... I believe we figured it out. But that's beside the point. What I'm trying to say is Luke could have arranged this any way that he wanted, but the Holy Ghost worked through him in a natural progression because he's trying to teach us all. Don't you give up on the promises God has made. Don't you give up on your dreams and hopes. Don't you look down on other people. Don't you consider some as foolish and not worth coming to Him. Don't you allow anything in this world, worldly wealth, to be a hindrance. And you tell Him what you really want. Do you want to see Him or do you just want money from Him? You know, the pure in heart, the Word says, will see God. I've often wondered about that. Does that mean that you will look full into His wonderful face, as uh, the song says? The Word says God is spirit and can't be seen. That no one has ever seen God at any time except the one and only who came from His side. So what does it mean? I think God will open your eyes to where you can see His working in everything. As my heart began to be changed, I could stand outside a high school that I had become a janitor of. you got to love that. Graduate from a private college prep high school and go work as their janitor. Yeah. That's great. All the underclassmen, now seniors, and you're sweeping the floors, you know. That's right, Eric. Really's changed. Yeah. And look out into the distance and you see trees swaying in the wind and you are convinced they are worshiping God, that the whole creation is. You look at your buddies that you used to work out with, that you used to be engaged in physical conflict with, and you look them in the eyes with tears and say, I love you. And people are staring at you strange, you know. They don't seem to go that way. 
And yet, they talk with sincere affection about each other. And they don't know what to do because you're no longer wearing your macho mold. See, to the pure, all things become pure. You start to see God everywhere. Is this only for the righteous like you? Or is it also for those out there that others have counted out? See, I don't want to build a church full of pretty people. We already got all the pretty people we need right here. I want those that others have counted out. Because I'm convinced those are the ones that God wants. I want those that others look down on. I want those that others have given up on. I want those that the trappings of this world have been a hindrance and that in our lives they can see that if you give it up, you get so much more. I want to teach people to want to see Jesus rather than get something from Him. This is the difference between God being a cosmic genie or a ridiculous spiritual Santa Claus and being God. Jesus entered Jericho, the world, and was passing through. A man was there named Zacchaeus, born to be pure but not. He was a chief tax collector, a sinner, and was wealthy. It means it's hard for him to enter the kingdom. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, falling short of the glory of God, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. You know, a sycamore fig tree is an amazing thing. That's why I put this in your bulletin. Sycamore fig trees produce figs, but the figs are not edible (laughs) unless something happens. The Scripture says that Amos was a gatherer of sycamore figs. It's a gatherer because the word's not gather. Why do they translate it gatherer? Because they're trying to translate an expression or a thought rather than it literally. Like, hey, Steve, man, this is cool. Do I translate that as, this is really neat? Or, Steve, this lacks temperature. And they're caught somewhere. Because the word actually means piercer of figs. And they didn't think we would understand that. So I said, hey, you know what Nick does for a living? He pierces figs. Good for Nick. Yeah. What a job he's got, you know? The reason that you pierce a sycamore fig, is because it has a hard, waxy shell. You know what a hard, waxy shell? It doesn't want you to eat it. Yeah. You know those peppers we all eat? The reason the plant produces such difficult chemicals, such toxic things, is they don't want you to eat it. Right? And what do we do? Yeah, give me some more. I can take it. I can do it. Is that hot? No, not hot at all. You got any water? You know? The sycamore fig tree encapsulates its fruit in something hard and waxy, and the only way to get it to bud and bloom right is to cut all the way around it so that it can grow. You have to cut away the hard, waxy exterior. If you cut something in a circle, we don't have to worry about what we're cutting, especially we don't want to talk about that this morning. You can say that that's a circle incision. Or another way to say that is it is a circum. See, for Israel, which is often called a fig tree, to produce the fruit that God called them to produce, because they were all found short, just like you and I are found short, Jew and Gentile alike short of the glory of God, something had to happen. Flesh had to be cut away from them. Pride had to be cut away from them. They had to be willing to become like little children that were willing to climb trees, and what they wanted was not something 
become Messiah. They just wanted to be with and in and see Messiah. I would venture this morning to tell you that all people who are believers come to Him in the exact same way. We have to climb up something and realize that this structure around us, the religious structure, is imperfect. They can tell you the Roman road to salvation, but they cannot make you experience it. They can tell you that confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, but that does not make it a true statement. Do you understand what I mean? I was taught like a parrot to say certain scriptures as the proof that I was saved, but that did not make them true about me. If confession with your mouth is necessary, we literally could save the animal kingdom. You know? We'd get a parrot and we could be saved. This is not what's necessary. What is necessary is for you to be willing for something to be cut away from you to expose the fruit that God really wanted. And isn't it interesting that He calls this the fruit of the Spirit? What needs to be cut away, saints? For the man that approached Jesus in Luke 18, what needed to be cut away was his attachment to his worldly things. What needs to be cut away from you? Is it an unhealthy view of those that are lowly and you you have achieved something wonderful? Is it that that one over there can't be saved because they hurt you or wronged you in some way? What is it that needs to be cut away from you? Jesus entered the world and was passing through. And there was a man there born to be pure, but he was a sinner, the chief of sinners, and wealthy, entangled in the world. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being short, he could not, So he, because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a tree that had to be circumcised to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Do you think that Jesus chose His words carefully? I don't even think He had to choose His words carefully. It's a great thing about being sinless. I've never personally experienced that, so I don't know what it would be like. But I don't think that He chose His words carelessly. Let's say it that way. I must stay at your house tonight. Do you think that maybe what Luke has been teaching about pray and not give up, what Luke is teaching about even a tax collector can be saved, don't consider something lowly, don't be ensnared by wealth? Do you think that what he's saying is about to be displayed in a man's life? I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. When you ask people to get saved, it's funny, you get a variety of answers. Some say, well, you need to follow this three-step process. Here's a track, I'll show you how. Some say, no, you need to be confirmed in our church and you've got to cannibalize Jesus. They wouldn't say it like that, but... Others would say, no, don't force your theology on me. There is no born-again experience. We simply are in the church. We were always destined to be there have all kind of things, all kind of systems by which men believe they're saved. You know what the Word teaches is salvation? 
when He speaks and you do. You can say that you believe Him all of it. What if, what if Zacchaeus would said, I see what you're getting at. I believe you. But sat in the tree. Well, I'll tell you what he would be. He'd be like a Christian glued to their pew. But when Jesus says, come down immediately, and he does it, salvation comes to him. Because the Lord has spoken and Zacchaeus has treated him as Lord by doing what he said. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He is going to be the guest of a sinner. No, he was a sinner sitting in the tree. Now that he's come down, he's a saint. But Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now. I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. (laughs) You remember when we were talking about a Pharisee and a tax collector earlier? Right? And they both go to the altar and one says, Oh, thank you that I'm not like him. What a Pharisee would have done if he was confronted and realized, a pious man, a good man, if he had realized that he had cheated somebody, Leviticus 6 and Numbers 5 both teach a concept. You see the amount that I cheated them. That's for meant to say that it was a dollar. Now I need to repay them that dollar and the law says I must add one-fifth to it. So I'm going to pay back a dollar twenty to David because I stole the dollar from him and I'm going to go make an offering to show God that I'm repentant. That's what the law required. But those that have been forgiven much love much. And Zacchaeus, Realizing salvation has come to him and he was the least likely of people to be saved. But now he knows he's saved. And you know what? He's not doing something to get saved. He's doing it because he's saved. And he says, I'm not going to give everybody back what I took from them. I'm going to give them four times that amount. That's an amazing thing, saints. Could anybody question that the man had been touched by God? Because of what he believed. Because of what he did. He could say that he believed God had forgiven him. He could say that he believed that Jesus was Lord. And would it really matter? Not as long as he was cheating and stealing from people. But when his actions began to change, then he may not even have to say that Jesus was Lord. People would see it and ask him for the reason that he had such hope. Isn't that an interesting concept? You realize that the King of Kings said, do not believe me unless I do what my Father does? And the church says the exact opposite. Believe me, even though I do not do the things my Father does? How interesting. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house. Why? Because we're saved by works? No, but His works were evidence of the faith that was there. When did you first see faith? When He got down out of the tree. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. You know, that was like, uh, that, that was like pouring vinegar in a wound 
wound to the Israelis. Of course he's a son of Abraham. I mean, he was born a Jew. But they considered him worse than a Gentile dog because he worked for the Roman oppressors. And now he's being called the son of Abraham? God will take those that others have counted out and seat them at His table and consider them His sons as righteous as Jesus found in Jesus. This is why Ephesians says that you're seated at the right hand of God with Him in heavenly realms. Now, what state were you in when He came and saved you? What do you think we ought to be looking for? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Another place in the Scripture, both in Matthew and in Luke, everybody's amazed that tax collectors are getting saved and that prostitutes are getting saved. He says, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. Saints, I want our church to focus on some things. Those people in your lives that seem beyond help. Don't you give up on them. Don't give up on them. As long as God is in the business of taking souls and making Pauls, don't you give up on them. Your very life is a testimony to the power of God. I want you to refuse to look down on anyone else. It's true, God has cleaned up your life. It's true that He has made you holy and you are a saint now and not a sinner. But remember, you didn't get there by your hard work. You got there by His grace. So refuse to look down on anyone else. Don't look at others as inferior to you because of your great spiritual learning. Don't try to rebuke kids as they come to Jesus. This pastor was ordained while I was still a kid. Some were very fond of telling me I was a kid. But you know what? I could not be kept away from Jesus. And He didn't seem limited by my age. Don't let anything in your life, especially not your checking account, keep you from doing God's will. There is a worldly wisdom that says save some, reserve some. And if God's told you to do it, you save every bit of it. He must have a use for it in the future. But I refuse to live my life reserving something out of fear. I'm going to pour out everything that I have every time unless the king says otherwise because I'm trying to invest in a kingdom that people cannot see but that I can feel. And decide today what you want from Jesus. Lord, bless Johnny, Susie, us four. No more. Or do you want to see Jesus in everything that you do and in all the people that you go to? Do you think heaven rejoices less over the agnostic alcoholic that gets saved than over your kids when they got saved? You know, the whole world looked at Zacchaeus and saw a chief tax collector But I want you to remember he started somewhere in somebody's arms as a baby named Pure. Next time you pass somebody under an overpass, remember that as some mother's baby. And she had dreams and visions for them. 
Saints, we need to see and hope for what no one else will see and hope for. We need to pray and not give up, and we need to fight for the oppressed. Theologians call it God's preferential option for the poor and the oppressed. Well, that sounds so pretty. But the way the rubber meets the road is when you do things for people that no one else would do. Can we pray today and ask that God would make us in our actions what we've already declared with our mouths? Could we decide today to do something different this week rather than to simply intellectually ascend to this message? Could we actually let people see that we are Christians by what we did? Can you all say amen to that? And you understand that amen means so be it unto God. So when we pray and I pray that and you say amen, we're not just going to sit back and go, well, isn't that special? I hope it happens. We're saying as surely as God is, that is going to happen. And then you will pray and work and not give up until you see it happen. Will you pray and support others that are doing that? Yeah. And even if you think somebody's making a mistake, Nick, Nick, that guy might be taking advantage of you. Realize that Nick is doing this for the glory of the King. And whether the other person has false or pure motives, God will not let Nick down. Amen. Stand to your feet.